Welcome back to the podcast. This is Charlotte, Creative and Technical Director here at Evidence for Faith. And since it's Friday, we are switching to our Keep the Fires Burning study, which is a study of the minor characters of the Bible. And today we get to meet Boaz. Now, I'm going to be honest, I'm looking at this list of introductions I have to do today. And that is at least one of the names I know how to pronounce. So stay tuned over the next few weeks as I butcher these poor people's names and or create debates in your car or at your workplace about how these should be pronounced. So, <laughs> um, but before we jump into that part, um, I need to do my little ad for our 2023 Israel trip. So if you'd like to join us or just go have a fun time in Israel looking at biblical archaeology and biblical history and all these different sites and have an archaeologist and Bible scholar answer all of your Bible questions, come on this trip. Uh, Michael Lane will be teaching alongside Dr. Stephen Notley, who is an archaeologist uh, down there. And they'll be taking us to all kinds of different sites. The itinerary is on the website if you want to check it out. And I highly encourage you to check it out. The link is going to be in the description of this podcast, or you can go to evansforfaith.org slash 2023israel, or just click on the events tab, which I highly encourage you to always check the description. I put stuff in there. <laughs> Very useful things. So as always, this program is supported by listeners just like you. If you'd like to help support this broadcast and keep it free, you can become a donor at evidenceforfaith.org slash give. That's evidence, the number four, faith.org slash give. And with that, here is Michael in Keep the Fires Burning. Let's meet Boaz. Welcome to Evidence for Faith. This is Michael Lane, your host. So glad you're joining me today as we're starting off. This is the first lesson after our introduction on minor Bible characters, but major lessons that they teach us. Um, these are ways to keep the fires burning, how we can keep our relationship with God going. How do we grow spiritually? What can we learn from these lesser characters that God has put in his word? There are so many minor characters that are um, integrated throughout the Bible, hundreds and hundreds of characters. And a lot of times we we sort of glaze over many of these, and this series is talking specifically on these. We're taking some of the lesser-known characters, some that the Bible doesn't even give a name to, and we're going to see that we can learn things. God gave them uh, to us in his word, and one of the things is, uh, by giving this these things, these characters, is things to help us in our growth, things to help us in our relationship with him. <clears throat> so as we begin this series, we're going to be starting with... Um, Boaz. Boaz from the book of Ruth. So if you have your Bibles open, if you're following along with your Bibles, we're going to be in the book of Ruth today, uh, Old Testament book. Wonderful book, and the character we're doing is Boaz. Now, you probably have heard of Boaz. He's not a real major player. People often know Ruth or Naomi, and a lot of people do know Boaz, but have you ever sat down and really studied this character of this guy? That's what we're going to be seeing in this. What is this guy's character like? And <clears throat> excuse me, what what I believe um, a good character title for Boaz is this: a godly gentleman. Boaz is a godly gentleman. So as we begin with our series today, let me tell you a story to introduce this uh, Boaz character. But it's a story um, uh, a teacher friend of mine once told me um, a few years back of a situation that happened to, to him. You see, he was working in his room after school, and it was getting quite late. 
Um, He thought he was the only person still in the building, but he wasn't. As he worked in his room, suddenly in came one of his high school students, one of his female students. She was one of the prettiest girls in the school, no question about that. She was absolutely stunning, he said, beautiful girl, and that she had been one of his students um, for many classes that he taught in high school. And he asked her um, that, you know, what she was there. He, you know, he said he was pleasantly surprised to see her walk in, but why was she still in the building at this time of late afternoon, early evening? And she made some reply, but it was what started happening. Um, he, di- he didn't seem to register what was going on at first. Because as he invited her in, she closed the door behind him, behind her, and then walked over, and he helped sit her down in a chair. She had a seat, and he sat down. And um, But as she walked over and, and sat down, it, it was her behavior that was sort of like making him think, what's going on here, as he was thinking in his mind. You see, she sat down, and <clears throat> her smile lit up her face as... Um, she said, I'm so glad that you're, you're still here. Uh, I was afraid that maybe you'd left. Uh, he again asked her, he was very uneasy, and he asked again, you know, why are you here? And then she proceeded to tell him what was on her mind. In doing so, she was unbuttoning the top button of her blouse, and then the next one. Um, <clears throat> so she was really um, behaving a little strange, and he was very uneasy. She told him that she wanted to have an affair with him. Mm-hmm. Wanted to have an affair with him. It would just be their secret, though. You see, no one else was in the building and would know, and uh, they could meet like this, she said, frequently, as often as he wanted. And she also admitted, she says, I know that you're married. You're never going to divorce your wife. And she said, that's okay with me. Uh, She just wanted to have this time with him until she left for college. She told him there'd be no commitments and no hang-ups. Wow. True story. Probably happens more often than we think. Um, Being I've taught in the public school system for many years, um, things like this do happen. So what's this got to do with Boaz? Well, you'll see. There's... We'll address this story again towards the end. But we know that Boaz is from the book of Ruth. and um, But how much do we really ever seem to study about him? Um, I mean, yes, true. He was an ancestor of King David. Thus, he's an ancestor of Jesus the Messiah. But let's take a, a really careful and extremely close look at this man, at his character, Um, and see that there's some lessons we can learn from him to deepen our walk with Christ as we traverse this this fallen world. Now, Boaz actually doesn't even come into the picture as you start reading book. Now, the book of Ruth. Ruth is just four chapters long. It's a quick read. An average person can read the entire book in 15 minutes or less, Um, and he doesn't appear until chapter two. So let me set the scene of what's going on in chapter one. There was a man named Elimelech who was living in Bethlehem, and his wife was named Naomi. They have two boys. But in Bethlehem, in Judea, uh, there was a, a famine, a very bad famine. 
And Elimelech decides to take Naomi and his two sons um, over to Moab, which is disobeying God's law, that they weren't supposed to do this. They were not supposed to go and live um, in the land of Moab because they were Hebrew and allotted this land in um, in Canaan as their own area for their tribe to live. And so they go over there. And while they are there, um, the two boys um, grow up and they meet two Moabite women and they get married. Each of them marries um, a Moabite gal. And very soon afterwards, both the boys die and um, Naomi's husband also dies. So it ends up with Naomi and two daughters-in-law. And Naomi um, convinces, I mean, they're already in disobeying God's law by going over there and disobeying God's law by letting them marry these Moabite women. Um, they're just constantly flaunting God's God's laws as they're doing this. And then Naomi um, is going to head back to Bethlehem, and she tries to tell them, you guys go back in, to your own gods, worship your own gods. I'm going to go back to Bethlehem. Um, I've got nothing here anymore, and you two just go on and do that. So she encourages them to actually um, go back um, or to stay in Moab and to um, encourages them to worship their the idols that are there. Uh, Ruth, of course, is one of these two girls, and uh, Ruth refuses. She says, no, um, your God will be my God. She is totally loyal to Naomi, and she's going to go back to Judea, and uh, uh, or Judah, the tribe of Judah, and Bethlehem with Naomi. So that's what's happened. And now they come back, they're penniless, et cetera, as they come back to Bethlehem. And that's basically the the what's going on in chapter 1. When you get to chapter 2, in the first verse of chapter 2, we read, Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Now here we see something very interesting, that um, Boaz is a relative of Naomi's husband, who is now deceased. Uh, from this sentence, we find that he is a husband, um, or um, a, a relative of Naomi's husband, Elimelech, but we aren't told what kind of um, relative he is. Most scholars believe that he is a cousin, but we're not certain because the Bible's actually silent on the specifics of the relationship here. In any case, Boaz is described, as it says in the scripture, as worthy, worthy, which is interesting because the Hebrew word that is used here, uh, kayel, is a word that means that he has power and that he has wealth. That's a word that is used for that. <clears throat> it's used a couple of other times in Scripture. For one, it is the same word to describe the Queen of Sheba when she comes and visits Solomon. That's in 2 Kings chapter 20. Or, I'm sorry, 2 Kings chapter 10, verse 2, and 2 Chronicles chapter 9, verse 1. You'll see this word used again, and referring to the queen, who's very powerful, very wealthy, etc. And now we have that same word being given as a description of who Boaz is. So Boaz, obviously, is a wealthy person. We know from the story as it, it unfolds, he owns many fields uh, around the Bethlehem region. And Bethlehem is where the story is now set in chapters 2, 3, and 4. And Boaz, is um, that's his hometown, and that's where he lives. And there's a lot of things that take place in this town. Um, 
For instance, in Bethlehem, there's a lot of biblical history here. These are the same fields where later on G, uh, David is going to be uh, watching the family sheep. It's it's also the same fields right around there that uh, in the Christmas story where the shepherds are sitting when the angels appear. Um, it's also was the site of Rachel, Jacob's uh, wife, who died um, giving birth, and and uh, she was buried right there. And in those days, in the time of this book taking place, um, we we know that Rachel's tomb was even known at that time, because even today there's uh, the traditional place of Rachel's tomb. It's quite a, um, a site there in in uh, Bethlehem. Um, so it would have been visible at that time. So all these kind of things happen there. And so a lot of things go on in, in Bethlehem. And this story now unfolds all around there. And today, if you go to, to Israel, if you take a tour with us, we go to Israel. Um, I, I co-lead tours to Israel. And one of the places we frequently like to go is Bethlehem. A lot of people like and request to go there. So we usually include it. And if you, on some tours, you can get on a tour and it'll take you around and they'll take you to a field and they'll say, this is Boaz's field and there's another one, this is the shepherd's field. Whether these are the actual places or not, we don't know. Uh, it's not like Boaz put up a big monument saying this is Boaz's field and it's still there today. We don't know. But the area around there, certainly he owned a lot of these fields. So um, it's quite possible some of these fields, yeah, those were the fields that Boaz owned because he was a very as it says, um, powerful and wealthy person. So um, that makes perfect sense. Now, that's what's uh, that first part there. Now, we could, something else happens here that tells us a little bit about Boaz's faith in his relationship with God. If you skip down to chapter 2, verse 4, it says, And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. Now, you might be thinking, did I miss something? All it says about him is he says, the Lord be with you. Well, this is a type of greeting uh, that does give us an indication of God, uh, his relationship, Boaz's relationship with God. In spite of the land having gone through a famine, which we saw in Ruth chapter 1, verse 1, um, and now being blessed again with God's hand, that's Ruth chapter 1, verse 6, uh, Boaz seems like he's always been a faithful follower of God of God, no matter what. Um, and he will remain a close follower of God because the greeting that he gives is that type of an indication where he says, the Lord be with you. If he's not talking about, will Baal be with you? Will Molech be with you or something? He's actually using a proper um, greeting of a, what a person would use who is walking close with God. So we get this. And plus, we see as the story unfolds, he is a person that's very honorable. Besides being powerful and wealthy, he is walking close with God. We do get that. And he's called a kinsman redeemer. In a series that we did on messianic prophecies, uh, you can look on our website and find, um, you get to the book of Ruth, and we talk about how Boaz is a precursor of uh, the character of who Jesus, the Messiah, would be, that he would be called the kinsman redeemer. And it's interesting, because when you come across a biblical character in the Old Testament that seems to be perfect, um, like Daniel or Boaz here, these people are usually, um, uh, their lives are like, um, in a way, um, prophetic about how the Jews will recognize the Messiah when he comes. Now, Boaz, as Daniel and others were, they they were ordinary people. Of course, they they sinned. They, they did things wrong. But he's a very upright 
person, and he seems to be walking very closely with God, so much so that he is compared to his life with what the Messiah will be like. And he does not disobey God. Um, His relative, Elimelech, actually took his family to Moab, which was against the law of God, Boaz did not do that. He stayed in Bethlehem. Even though his crops probably failed during all of this time um, with the famine that went on, he was probably suffering financial loss and stuff. He still, and I love this, um, when they come back, he is still apparently walking close with God. Which right there, there's a lesson for us that we should we should learn that even when difficult times come upon us, when an illness pops up, a severe illness, maybe a life-threatening illness, and instead of cursing God, draw close to God. Um, when situations in in life, um, maybe jobs or um, other type of things happening, loss of a loved one or something, a lot of people tend to blame God and, and to walk away from it. Well, Boaz obviously went through a very difficult time, and now the times are looking up again. He's still faithful to God. He never left God, like Elimelech actually took his family to Moab. So he didn't do that. So this gives us an idea, too, about this guy's character. He seems like he is um, a faithful follower of God who remains close to God no matter what the circumstances are. We can learn from that. But there's more we can learn. First of all, let's get a time frame of when the story is taking place to understand this a little better. Um, it can be determined very easily by looking at the last chapter of the book of Ruth. You'll see in the last couple of verses, it gives genealogies that are listed there that take place later on um, until you get to actually David. This tells us... so. Um, they, Boaz is going to be an, um, an ancestor of, later on, David, and we know that David became the first, uh, or the second king. Saul was the first king, David was the second, so there is no king in Israel at this time. So the book of Ruth is actually taking place in the latter period of the book of Judges, where we have different judges. Now, some of the latter judges were men like Japheth and, and uh, Samson and, and Eli. There's no king yet, and so the, the Lord is using judges. The, what was happening was the people would turn to God, they'd follow God, everything prospering, everything looking nice, and then they would walk away from him. Like, oh, we don't need God, we can depend upon ourselves. Uh, things are going good. And then God would let neighboring tribes and, and enemy come in and oppress them. And then um, to call them back, he would, um, he would call a judge. And um, this person would be like a military leader, but also a judge, like a, in a way a governor, not a king, and they would call the people back to God. The people would follow God until that judge died, and then they would fall back again. And this just kept going on. And this is the period when Ruth, this book of Ruth, is taking place, is during the, during the period of the book of Judges. <clears throat> there is no king yet. So we have that set as a time frame. Now, as I said, Boaz is a really upstanding guy. He's a true Israelite, a true Hebrew. He is wealthy. He is powerful. But he's also single. There's no indication whatsoever that he is married or that he ever was married. Um, there is no suggestion anywhere in the, in the Bible um, out, you know, at the beginning of the story that he is married. So it seems rather odd, actually, considering the culture of that day that he would be single. Um, He's obviously, as we're going to see, he's an older man. 
at this point. He's probably anyway in close to 40. Many scholars think that he was probably somewhere in his 40s, uh, early 40s or latter 30s, that he was an older man. Uh, Ruth at this time uh, would be still a teenager. Um, she obviously got married in um, in her land of Moab, and back then they usually married very young, um, and she has no children. It's not that she can't have children, because she does have a child through Boaz, as the story continues, but she doesn't have children yet, so it's very likely um, her husband died very early in the marriage, and she um, is very young. So most Bible scholars will say that she's probably in her early teens. So that gives you an idea here um, about the age differences of what we're going to see. But in any case, I've done a lot of studying, trying to find more information, looking at commentaries, and even going back into ancient commentaries and ancient, some ancient Jewish commentaries. I found some fascinating things that have been taught. It's not biblical, but it gives us uh, some impression of why maybe he wasn't married, because he definitely had the wealth and he had the power. But the problem was, uh, according to some some scholars, he it's actually says in one commentary um, that he had the face of a mule, um, that he's not the uh, <laughs> the most handsome man who's ever walked. He's not a, a Tyrone Power or um, you know a Brad Pitt or something like this. He's he's not a real handsome dude. Um, so that seems a little a little odd. But um, he he does seem to be older than Ruth also, because we're going to see in uh, chapter 3, verse 10, where Boaz says, uh, talking to her, that you could have gone after a younger man, um, whether poor or rich. <laughs> so he says this to Ruth, who at this time, you know, they're talking about getting married, and he's amazed that she is interested in him at his age. And uh, we're going to see why and stuff as this goes on. But we do see that Boaz is single. That's what this comes out. And I believe that there's probably a reason for it. Um, the Bible doesn't say, but he seems to be a very caring individual. Um, he seems to have money. Um, he definitely has means. He has land. And he is older. So there's got to be something. It just seems like there must be something not quite right that, because a guy like him should be married in that culture back then, but he wasn't. So um, don't know why. Um, maybe he was repulsive in appearance. I don't know. Anyway, it's not that important. Um, I mean, normally when people at this age or in this culture at his age would have been married, um, but he's not. And not, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that everybody needs to get married. I'm not saying that all men must be married and all women must be married. I'm not saying that. Marriage is a gift. Um, some men are not meant to get married. Some are. Uh some men just don't have the gift. I mean, I've come across quite a few people like that. They just don't have the gift for marriage. And like I say, this goes true for women too. There are some women I have met definitely do not have the gift for marriage, um, though I think the majority probably do. But anyway, um, I mean, just just look at the number of divorces that we have in our country today. Um, a lot of these um, people... Um, I mean, you can you can make a marriage work, but some people just don't have the gift of doing that. So, no, um, I believe that some people are just not meant to get married. I just don't think they have the gift. But um, anyway, Boaz is not married. But we're going to see something here, and I'm going to be frank with you as we go through this. Boaz is not married, but when this uh, Moabite gal Ruth comes by, he's not dead either. <laughs> 
he's not. Because when she comes by, she catches his eye. In Ruth chapter 2, verse 5, Ruth has been, uh, is going to the fields trying to find food because um, Naomi and, and Ruth have come back to Bethlehem, but they have no means of support. They have no money. And according to the Old Testament law given by Moses and the Torah, um, people who have means, who have property, who have fields, are to, not to pick every single grain um, for their own benefit. They're to leave sections of, of their fields and stuff for the poor. Uh, it's a welfare system God set up, and it's a very good welfare system that there are means of um, families going out and still getting food and stuff, but they have to work for it. Nothing was handed to them. Uh, uh, like someone like Boaz wouldn't harvest the entire field. He would leave sections open for the poor people, for the travelers to come by and that they can get food. Um, it was a welfare system. And maybe we should employ something like that instead of just handing out stuff for free, going back to the way God set this up. It's a good system because the people could actually go out and, and work instead of just sitting at home having money sent to them. Uh, now, I'm not, please don't send me letters saying, oh, I'm so against the welfare system. I'm not. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that there are some that take advantage of the system. And God set up a system in his word that works really well for most people. So in any case. Um, but what happens is uh, Naomi has told Ruth to go out in fields and glean, trying, using the Mosaic law, go out and get grain and see what you can harvest and see if we can get enough to live on. So this verse tells us um, in Ruth 2.5, it says, Then Boaz said to the young man who was in charge of the reapers, Who's the young woman? Whose young woman is this? So Boaz notices Ruth. Now there's going to be other women in the field, but he notices this, uh, this one Moabite gal. Um, this verse tells us something about Ruth too. Um, there's a lot of men working in the field, but there are also women working in the field. If you read this story in chapter 2, there are women. We're going to see that. There's other women working in the field, doing the same thing as Ruth is doing. Um, and But the thing is, Ruth stood out in the crowd. Boaz is coming. Sorry and picture this. The men are working. It's in the heat of the day. He's come comes by to check on, uh, early in the morning, he's coming by to check on the, the uh, progress of his groups and the harvesting uh, um, of his men doing this, people he's employed. And he knows that there's women because this has been happening. And it's a, a standard occasion where you see women out doing the gleaning of the field as well. And But this time when he comes, he specifically notices Ruth. He calls it out. He, he actually goes to like um, to his, his workmen and asks, whose young woman is this? So this tells us that there's something about Ruth that really catches his eye. Uh, Ruth, in other words, Ruth stands out in a crowd. Now, um, some have suggested, some scholars have suggested that people from Moab had a lot of tattoos where uh, Hebrew people were not tattooed. We don't know um, if that was what it was. I tend to think that's probably not it because she's wearing um, clothes and stuff. Uh, can't see all of the things about her. But whatever it is, she catches Boaz's eyes. Like I say, he's not married, but he's not dead. And um, she, he notices her when she goes by, and he goes up like basically to the foreman. Hey, who's who's that girl? I haven't seen her before. Who is that? But not just who. He's he says whose young woman is that? He's wanting information. So she certainly catches Boaz's eyes as she was in a group of other women. I find that fascinating, and it tells us something about her. Matter of fact, in some commentaries. Um, 
ancient Jewish commentary uh, that I came across said that Ruth was probably one of the very uh, was a very beautiful gal. Remember, uh, she's probably in her uh, early or mid teens, and she's must be pretty because wow, it caught his eye. And so he inquires of the others about her. And when she discovers that she was married to a relative of his, he treats her as a family member. He gives her special treatment. He doesn't do this with the others. Of course, the others are not related to him. But before that even happened, before she finds, he finds out that she's related, he's already inquiring about this girl. Then he's told that she's a relative. So... He's definitely caught, um, she's caught his eye. Uh, if you look at Ruth chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, it says, Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, don't go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young men. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. I have charged the young men not to touch you. And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Now, this is an amazing statement because he's giving her special treatment. Um, and already he's obviously, he's, he says, I've told my men not to bother you. Um, so he's, Boaz has actually inquired about her and has told everybody, hey, um, who is that? They tell him who it is. Okay, none of you guys bother her. Yeah, she's family too. She's, she's family member. Nobody bother her. And instead of her just drinking from her little canteen and stuff, if you guys are going to draw fresh water out, uh, let her come over and drink that with you guys. And none of you bother her. Now, remember, Boaz is highly respected. He's a very powerful man. And obviously the men are adhering to, to his, uh, uh, his rules and stuff because uh, Boaz treats her like he treats a family member. But um, he, he noticed that, um, you know, he's protecting her and helping her. That's what he's doing. Don't go to other fields. Just be here. You're going to be safe here. Nobody's going to bother you here. I'm going to see to it that no one bothers you. And he's treating her because, yes, she's a family member. But notice, remember, too, he's, he's not married. And he's not trying to pursue her as a wife. If so, he is the slowest man uh, on the planet. I mean, and that might be his case, too, of why he never got married. He does nothing about trying to pursue her as a wife, even though he knows the law of Moses requires him to marry, if possible, um, and uh, to marry her to support the family. He knows how these laws are. Of course, there is somebody more closely related, but he doesn't seem to, at first, go into that aspect. Um, most likely, as we found out already, he questions, you know, when she does seem to express interest, that she could easily go after a younger man. But anyway, Boaz, man, he's, he's so interested in her, but he doesn't make a move to marriage. Uh, doesn't make a marriage move with her. Instead, he treats her with family respect. Then at lunchtime, oh my gosh, look what happens at lunchtime, verse 14. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and drip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain and she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. Now I'm telling you, this is an amazing thing. This I think this almost qualifies as a date. Oh, yes, it's a family member. True. But remember, he's single. He knows 
that mm, I sh probably should be in line to marry this gal. She's not married anymore. She's a widow. I should be taking over this, but I'm a slow mover. But I'm going to make sure she's safe. And hey, instead of eating over there with the women, come over here and eat with the men. They're not going to bother you. Come over. Come over here. And do you notice that it actually says in Scripture that he passed to her rose cray? So she's sitting right by him because he's passing. It's not like uh, telling somebody, uh, make sure she gets some food. It says that he passed the grain to her and that she ate. And, and he gave her so much that she was satisfied and even had leftovers. So he's giving her an abundance. He does not, he didn't do this with the other women, obviously, but he's doing it with her and bringing her right there in the group. Now, I'll tell you, this, this is quite a thing because after the meal, the other men in the area are, are um, in the area, they are given strict commands not to bother her, uh, not to hit on her, um, to treat her like she's family to Boaz, which she is but through marriage. Um, so it's really interesting that Boaz is taking such special care of her. I mean, look at verses 15 and 16 of chapter 2. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also pull out some of the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. Whoa, gee, Boaz is making sure that nobody is going to hit on this girl. I mean, he's got his eye on her, obviously. Nobody's going to hit on her. He's protecting her. And he's actually saying, you guys purposefully leave extra grain and stuff so that she can pick it up. And I'm giving her the permission to work, not where the women work, but right alongside you men. So, I mean, for one, he's trusting his men. They obviously have a great respect for Boaz because no one bothers her. So we see that being a very interesting situation. And the thing is, it says that um, that he's providing for her in, in a very ingenious way. He's going out of his way to help this girl. Like I say, she has caught his eye, and she tells, and he tells her that she can work in, in his fields until the harvest is over. That's like a, another month possibly or more because the barley and the wheat harvest are going on. And so, wow, she's going to get a lot of food. As a matter of fact, that's what happens. She comes home that night, and she's got so much food. Naomi can't believe, you know, she's even got leftovers from lunch. Where in the world did you get lunch? You didn't have money for lunch. Oh, um, this guy uh, where I was working in the field uh, took me out to lunch. We had lunch together and made sure I had even leftovers and stuff to take home. I mean, wow, this is an amazing story that's going on here. Um, so in, in verse 21, we see Ruth uh, the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all the harvest. So she's telling Naomi, This guy's actually protecting me and stuff, and he's he's you know such a nice guy. He's doing all this for me and stuff. So that's how this introduction between these two come about. But now the story takes a turn. Naomi starts, uh, Naomi knows what God's law is, and so she's like, okay, uh, Ruth, this is what we're going to do. We're going to get you to marry Boaz. He's very wealthy. He can take care of us. Um, he's highly respected, et cetera, et cetera. And I could just hear Ruth. Well, he he didn't propose anything like that. I, you know, um, I, he noticed me, no question about that. Well, um, Naomi's going to set up, she plays Cupid here, a matchmaker. Um, he's, she's going to take it into her hands to have Ruth propose to Boaz. Yeah, and that's that was a little different. Um, 
Now, I told you, Boaz, he's pretty slow at this marriage routine stuff. He's just really slow. Um, But notice how Boaz handles himself through all of this. This is amazing. Well, first of all, Naomi tells Ruth, okay, this is what I want you to do. Um, The harvest is just about over, so this has been going on for a while. Uh, They've been meeting for lunches and stuff. But now she says, now's the time. The harvest is over. They're going to be celebrating. There's going to be a big celebration. Um, Boaz is going to have all the people there. He's going to call in friends and stuff. They're going to have a big feast. There's going to be a lot of wine. They're all going to just have a big party. And I want you to go and propose to Boaz. What do you mean, Ruth says, possibly? Like, you really want me to go to this party? No. What you're going to do, listen, and this is recorded in Ruth 3.3. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself. Put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. So in other words, Naomi, being the matchmaker here, she's looking for the best opportunity to get Ruth to propose to Boaz. And as I say, um, she she knows Boaz needs a little product. So um, she says, go take a bath, get yourself, get your best perfume on, your best dress, et cetera, et cetera, and go down there in the middle of the night. Now, stop here for a second. Can you imagine... Can you imagine doing this with someone that you really care about? You're going to send your teenage daughter to a banquet where there's a bunch of men eating and drinking and celebrating, all dressed up, smelling nice, uh, squeaky clean, and go and send her into that at nighttime? But that's what she's doing. And, I mean, it's amazing. But Ruth goes in the middle of the night um, and goes, and what Boaz does is, Boaz is, as we're going to see, he finished eating and after having his wine and stuff, and uh, Naomi has set this up, go there in the nighttime to a secluded place where he will be, I know where he's going to be, and you're going to propose marriage to him. So, as it says in verse uh, chapter 3, verses 7 and 8, and when Boaz had eaten and drunk, and his heart was merry, he went, down, uh, went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she, this is Ruth, came softly, and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man, this would be Boaz, was startled and turned over. And behold, a man or a woman lay at his feet. So that's what happened. She waits until Boaz, who has eaten his fill, drank wine as everybody else. As there's just been a massive party going on. People are now having a lot of wine flowing and drinking and food and stuff. Their bellies are full. And now after this celebration at the end of the harvest, they all lay down to go to sleep. And Boaz is sitting where the, the grain is sitting and piled up. Now, this passage sounds a little weird possibly to us today. Um, because actually it can go, you can take two different interpretations and scholars do this. Not everybody can agree on how this part of the story, where it says she came softly and covered his feet and lay down, to what that truly means. Now, there's one school that says, uh, takes this as the literal approach, that she literally snuck up to him at nighttime, picked up the blankets off of his feet and laid down there. And that's what this is meaning. Then somehow in the middle of the night, he uh, turns over and it says that he's startled, turns over and finds a woman laying at his feet in the dark there. There's another school of thought, though, that some scholars adhere to, those that study more on possibly on ancient cultures and stuff, particularly on Moab, because this is where Ruth is from. Don't forget that. Um, 
that in ancient Palestine, in Moab and stuff, this had a different meaning, where it says to uncover his feet, that actually it carries, um, that phrase is a phrase that carries sexual overtones, that it is used to mean to uncover and to fondle, is what this is talking about. For, um, and for a Moabite girl to do this to a guy, to uncover his private parts and fondling, that is not that strange for a Moabite, because they, the Bible tells us the Moabite women were extremely promiscuous, uh, very open sexually. Um, this was a problem that happened all the time between Moab and Israel. It was a frequent problem that went on because the women were so free, uh, sexually free. And so many scholars say this is what was going on, that that's why uh, we see the next phrase, because it says at midnight the man was startled. Now, why would he be startled? The word for startled, we have to look at that, is harad. Um, harad means to panic, means to be terrified, to be totally startled, un- like you don't know what's happening. That's the word um, that is happening. That's that's Boaz's reaction, that whatever is happening of the two schools of thought, he is totally startled and panics. So um, to be awakened from a wine-induced sleep in the middle of the night, smelling perfume, knowing now that there's a presence of a woman next to him, um, it scares him. Um I mean, this old bachelor, it's amazing his heart didn't start uh, stop beating. Um, but that's what happened. Now, which school of thought you want to follow on this? I can find scholars that are on both sides, and they're adamant about, about both sides. Some want to keep Ruth in more of a, a holy nature and think of her as, oh, she wouldn't do that. You know, even, even though she's a Moabite and was raised in that culture, she wouldn't be like that. Others saying, no, that phrase is actually an ancient phrase referring to this, and she's from that land that used that phrase like that, and she definitely grew up with this type of behavior, and so it's not that odd. In any case, I don't want to get into an argument on which side of of this you want to go with. The point is, I want to focus on what Boaz's reaction is. I'm not caring that much about Ruth. I'm caring about what Boaz's reaction is. Because in most cases today, I think that uh, many men would react differently. I mean, just take David, for instance. When King David was couldn't sleep one night, goes for a walk along the, the top of his uh, roof of his home um, in the cool of the evening, he looks over and sees this foxy chicky babe sitting there taking a bath, and he drools all over and um, eventually um, calls her and you know, they go into an illicit uh, affair, and he even murders her husband. And, um, she produces a child of his. I mean, it's just terrible stories. David's worst story of his life basically taking place here. And Boaz doesn't act like that. No, he, he acts totally different. Boaz is acting more like in the book of Genesis with Joseph and Potiphar's wife. It's the same type of thing that um, Joseph was terrified by what Potiphar's wife was doing. I mean, it was a new experience for Joseph, too. And this is a new experience for Boaz. Um, So we see sort of a similarity here. But in both these cases, these two men are walking close with God. And instead of, of yielding to the temptation like David did, they don't do this. They do not falter. Even though what culture or what how secretive it could be, they do not falter. Now you're probably seeing why I opened with the story I did. Because in a situation like this, 
Boaz handles himself with great wisdom, with great control when tempted. And he also realizes this is a wedding proposal. There's no question about that. He catches that right away. In Ruth 3.9, it says, I am Ruth, your servant. She says then, spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Now, this is Ruth going back in and referring to what Naomi obviously has taught her about the Mosaic law, about a kinsman redeemer. And um, Boaz, who hasn't had probably a girlfriend all of his life, um, because he's not married with all of his wealth and power and everything, um, is now hit with this phrase, spread your wings over your servant. And that is a cultural phrase meaning marriage. Um, Yeah, it doesn't make too much sense to us today. We do proposals totally different than how they were done in ancient Israel during the time of the judges and stuff. But that is a wedding proposal is what that is. And he he recognizes this. And he knows when she uses the word redeemer, he knows what the law is and what he um, what she is meaning and stuff. Then he begins talking about, he goes from being terrified about how happy he is that he would be so happy to marry her and do the right thing. Um, Notice, not the way she's proposing, possibly. He tells her that, yeah, he will marry her. We will follow God's law on this. And according to God's law, there's somebody else who has a first right to you, but I will take care of this. Um, And then he says, settle down. I will take care of you because, man, there's that big party. There's a lot of people all around there. So stay here for a bit so I can can take care of you. Nobody's going to bother you. And um, so he dismisses her, though, before... Uh, light comes, and notice why he does this. Look at this. This is in Ruth 3.14. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. What's he doing? He's dismissing her, not right away, when there's probably still people lightly asleep, or maybe even some people still awake or something like this. He protects her, stay here. I'll protect you right now. No one knows you're here. We'll keep it like that. When everybody is really sleeping before it gets light in the morning, get up and secretively go out. What's he doing? He's protecting her reputation. And his, true. But her reputation is what he seems to be concerned most with. I love that. So she stayed with him that night. Uh, Obviously, there is no more activity of whatever was going on in either case. Now this is strictly legit. There is no sinful acts or anything like this taking place. He is protecting her um, as the wine had flowed freely that night. But he sends her away in the morning before dawn came. So as the story goes on, we find Boaz fulfilling his vow to Ruth, going through the proper channels of God's law. He, He follows God's law so carefully, making sure everything is done as God directs. I mean, this, again, speaks about this guy's character so much. And God blesses them. They do get married, they have children, and they are included in the ancestry of the Messiah. I mean, what a phenomenal way to end this story. It's a beautiful story, beautiful love story. But before leaving, let's just quickly re-examine what happened that night at the threshing floor when Boaz was awakened by this young, beautiful, foreign woman who appeared to be uh, quite, well, proposing marriage, uh, quite willing and attractive. Number one, Boaz stops her. In any way you look at this, he stops the activity of whatever's going on and makes it more reputable. 
So he stops her. Um, he's even concerned about her reputation. Second, though, he, though she was there, she was a beautiful sight, a girl who had caught his eyes, notice he does not take advantage of her. Did you catch that? Boaz does not take advantage. No one else knows she's there. They could have easily, like we would see maybe in today's culture, many people would succumb to this temptation and maybe go off to a, to a different place or get under the blankets or, or, oh, this isn't a good spot. There's too many people might find us. Let's go over here. Or, you know, let's get in your dad's chariot and go over here or something. No, we, they didn't do that. No, mm-mm, not at all. He wouldn't take advantage of her. Yeah, that is a remarkable person. David couldn't boast of that. <laughs> no. This is a remarkable gentleman that we have here. Third, he protected her reputation more than she did. I mean, she gets all dialed up and everything comes to visit him at this drunken party. Uh, people are drinking, eating, and stuff like this. And he protects her and her reputation, making sure that no gossip would be spread. Wow. You see, that's something that gentlemen do. We protect females. Make sure that they are not tarnished. We cherish them. We are called to protect them, to be a shield, as God tells us in the book of Ephesians chapter 5, not only to um, protect, um, to cherish, but we're to, to make sure that they stay uh, sanctified, that they can be holy and stuff. Boaz is following this. What Paul writes about in Ephesians chapter 5, dealing with marriage, we, we see Boaz doing the same thing here. Uh, that's amazing. This guy is such a gentleman. I just love this. And fourth, though tempted, he would not yield to his desires outside of marriage. He's a man, and he's biologically going to have certain hormonal desires, um, she's already married, uh, widowed, and so there had to be, I would think, it's not mentioned specifically in the Bible, but there is, just set this situation up. There seems to be temptation all around here that easily David would have fallen for, but not Boaz. This guy is really strict about following God's law. So Boaz was patient. He waited for God to fulfill his wishes for a wife. No doubt he had been asking God, I'm sure, for many years, how come I can't find a wife? God, why can't I get a wife? But when the opportunity came, he was a godly gentleman. We can learn from this. We, too, need to follow the actions of Boaz and of Joseph. But we need not to follow the example of David. I think God gave us part of this story to help us men in particular to notice to be following God's law, let God's timing work, not rushing into something on our own, and definitely not yielding to sexual temptations. And Ruth, the same thing. So women can learn the same thing here. And Ruth was very lucky to found, I mean, not lucky, it was God's providence, but to find someone who treated her with such respect and who was a godly man. Well, Going back to our opening story, the teacher that I was talking about at the beginning of the story was in a serious situation. He had this absolutely beautiful young lady sitting across from him, partially undressing herself, who desired to have a, shall we say, more than platonic relationship with him. The building was indeed empty. 
except for just the two of them in the lab. She was plainly, she plainly stated what her intentions were, what she wanted. She even proceeded with details of how they uh, could be together. She had obviously thought this out. It was a defining moment in this teacher's life. Well, how it ends is this. When the student had finished her offer, he quickly arose, walked over behind her chair, and pulled the chair out so that she could stand. He took her by the arm, and he walked her to the door, opened up the door, and told her to leave. says, you need to leave right now. And he told her, in parting, I made a promise to my wife on the day I married her that I am not going to break. I take that vow I made very seriously. So you need to leave. And she, he also added, you obviously had the wrong idea about me, because if you truly knew me, you would have known I would not do this. As the story ends, she turned to walk away, but as she did, she said to him, your loss. And then she left. There are godly men. There are people like Boaz is around. And I hope we can more and more men be more like Boaz. And I hope all of us, including myself, we are more like Boaz. Um, we can learn a lot from, from his character. He followed God, denied himself, followed God, his rules, his law, because of his love for God. We need to do the same. Father God, we thank you for this time that we have and love this story that you've given us. How beautiful a story this is. Absolutely fantastic story. And it teaches us so many things. Um, both men and women, we can learn from this beautiful uh, case study that we have here of Boaz. Help us to be strong. Help us always to focus upon you, to deny worldly pleasures, and to offer our bodies as a spiritual sacrifice for you, O oh God, which is a way of worship. So thank us and help us to be, be close and draw close to you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you enjoyed this, I invite you to listen to the next lessons as they become available in this series. We're going to be doing quite a few of these, over 20 different characters, and seeing these minor characters, what they can teach us. And we would love to hear from you. Um, you can go to our website um, and contact us that way. Also, um, I invite you, if you feel the Lord leading, to pray for us in our, uh, the Evidence for Faith ministry and our team, that uh, we can continue to serve God by freely giving lessons, um, me going around and speaking. If your church or organization would be interested in having and hosting me for uh, some Bible science or history uh, or logic um, seminar, or even just filling in at the pulpit sometime to give your pastor a break, please contact us at Evidence for Faith. We'd love to help out. And if you feel led by God to support our ministry, we do this all for free. Um, we don't charge for the, the Word of God. God gave us salvation for free, and we're doing this for free. But that means we have to depend upon the financial support of 
supporters and for people like you. So if you feel um, like you are in a way capable of giving, and if God puts it upon your heart to do that, that's fine. We thank you and praise him for that. But if just even for prayer, if you just want to pray for us, we really relish that also. So thank you so much, and we'd love to hear from you. But until we meet again, take care and God bless. Thanks for tuning in, and thank you to our donors who make this program possible. Evidence for Faith is a 501c3 nonprofit ministry based in the USA. You can support this broadcast by donating online using the links in the description. And don't forget to leave us a comment, a review, likes, and shares to feed the algorithm and help others find this content. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode.